Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 50, verses 15 through 26. Listen for God's word for us. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and I don't know about you, but is anyone else nervous about this final <laughs> Star Wars movie in the uh, saga here? Listen, okay, some of you are like, I've never liked sci-fi and I don't like this series specifically, but I got to tell you, ever since I was a kid, I've loved Star Wars. I acted out Star Wars scenes. I had like all these action figures that I stuck in like a little Darth Vader, you know, plastic holder and I would carry them around. I love Star Wars. But when I saw the trailer for the latest Star Wars film, I got more anxious than I did excited. I mean, how, how on earth are they going to bring all these storylines together and put a nice bow on it and somehow still not have the movie be six hours long, right? And if you know anything about this movie and some of the people who are involved, you're probably a little nervous like I am because J.J. Abrams is the director and if you watched the series Lost, then you know that this also was a pretty weighty series, and it ended in a bit of a train wreck, all because of our beloved J.J. Abrams. So listen, I am feeling a lot of pressure around this, and the reason I'm bringing this up now, while many of you are scratching your heads thinking, what happened to Gabe, the reason I'm feeling this pressure is because I'm starting to feel a little bit of that pressure from Moses here. <laughs> As we come to the end of the book of Genesis, I mean, we've been in this book for a long time. Some of you are thinking, finally, we're at the end of Genesis. Do I get a I survived Genesis t-shirt? Like, we've been in this for a minute now, right? But this is a big moment. I know that Genesis is like volume one of a five-volume set, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? But still, how Genesis ends is crucial. It's the first book, after all, of the Bible out of the 66 books. How is God going to bring all this together? We saw at the very beginning that God created everything and he made it good. He even goes so far to speak over it and say that it's very good. 
But then as we've been walking through Genesis, we've seen time and time again how we vandalized God's good world. And we've seen stories of failure, of disobedience, disappointment, and pain. Now, the most recent story, the story that it ends on, the story of Joseph, it comes to a head in a really beautiful way. But still, you're asking yourself, if you're anything like me, when we get to the end of book, book of Genesis and asking, well, how is God going to wrap all this up? How is he going to bring it all together? And what I love about that question, or maybe what feels so pertinent about that question, is that that's the question we ask of our lives far too often, isn't it? When we start thinking about the various particulars of our lives, whether it be our finances, whether it be relationships, friendships, marriage, children, hurts, pains, sickness, heartache. How's God going to bring all this together? How's God going to make it right? And if you're anything like me, you start asking, well, what should I do? What should I not do? What can I do? And what if I drop the ball? Can God still bring it together in the end? That's why I believe today's passage is such a gift to us. We get some astounding insight into how God works in the world. Some astounding insight into how God works in the world and then simultaneously guidance on how we're to navigate our everyday fears and so find a deeper confidence, a deeper hope, and a ballast to continue moving forward. You see, today's theme, the theme that ends the book of Genesis, the theme that's really been throughout the book of Genesis is this, God can make it good. Now, I want some a little participation. We've done this before. When I say God can make it, I want you all to say good, all right? So we're going to practice this a little bit because sometimes we need to say it. Um, we can't just hear it. We need to say it. So God can make it Let's try it again. That was good, though. That was good. Way to go. First step. You surprised me. God can make it. Good. God can make it. Good. As easy as it is to hear and easy as it is to say, it's really hard to believe that. And sometimes that's what keeps us up at night. Sometimes that's what wakes us up in the middle of the night is doubting. What is the central theme in Genesis and how it ends? What's so important, right? Think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, when God makes everything, what does he call it? Good. And yet with all the brokenness, with all the shame and all the pain and all the heartache, we still end, quote unquote, on a good note. But not even evil can stop God's good. There's bookends of good even in the midst of a broken world. Why? Because of who God is and what he can do. But what on earth does that mean? <laughs> like God can make it good. What does that have to do with me? What does that, how does that inform how I live my life? Well, this morning, in the midst of this overarching theme that is the book of Genesis, that God can make it good, we're going to see three really important steps for everyone on how we can actually work with God and his desire to make it good rather than against him. We're going to see three actions, postures, whatever you want to call them, as followers of Jesus where you can rest in what God is doing rather than constantly live in a place of worry and fear. But before we do that, let's remember where we are in the story, okay? So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. The last chapter in the book of Genesis, it's found on page number 44 if you're using one of our community Bibles. 
And over the span of the past few weeks, we've been looking at Joseph, I think one of the most fascinating characters in all of Scripture. And when he was a teenager, just to do a quick recap, as a teenager, he had literal dreams of grandeur. And you couple that with some explicit favoritism from his dad, Jacob, and it shouldn't surprise any of us that the rest of his brothers eventually snap. Now, what they do is pretty surprising. I mean, we're used to interfamily discord, but his brothers take it to a whole new level and they sell their brother to a passing caravan who then go down to Egypt and then sell Joseph again, this time to Potiphar. The text says, but God was still with Joseph in the midst of all of this injustice and this turmoil and such that Joseph was actually successful where he was. Well, he's very successful there in Potiphar's house, but then Potiphar's wife likes, notices something out of the side of her eye. She makes this really inappropriate advance towards Joseph. Joseph's like shuts it down hardcore and says, no, thank you. Still, she lies about it, and Joseph finds himself in prison for two plus years. We read that, that God was still with Joseph in prison for two plus years. Everybody appears to have forgotten about Joseph, but God. And then through a turn of a series of events and God's orchestration of Joseph's life, Joseph finds himself before Pharaoh, interpreting his dream. And through this God-given ability, Pharaoh notices in Joseph something truly astounding, such that he puts him second in command in Egypt. And then famine strikes the land. But because of what God has been doing through Joseph, Egypt is one of the few places that has all this food available to them. And so is it any surprise that as the surrounding nations come to Egypt to find food, the one place there is food in the known world at the time, that his family makes their way from Canaan to Egypt to also get food? Through a series of events, Joseph eventually reveals himself as second in command. And rather than exercising justice, he actually extends forgiveness and the family is reconciled such that Jacob, Joseph's dad, the rest of his family, all of his brothers, they move to Egypt, they settle in, but then eventually Jacob, his dad, dies. And this is where we find ourselves in Genesis 50. Joseph had forgiven his brothers, but now that their dad's dead, they're thinking, well, maybe Joseph, he didn't enact justice towards us and vengeance towards us because... Because dad was alive, and if he did that, then he would have sent dad to an early grave. But now that dad's gone, surely this is the time where Joseph's really going to let his full colors flow. And so they concoct some crazy story that dad's final words on deathbed were to make sure that Joseph does indeed follow through and extend this exorbitant forgiveness. And what happens, I just... When people cry in scripture, I just kind of stop. And I don't know if it's because I'm a parent now and I just cry all the time. Uh, for good things. It's like, wait a second. Um, but Joseph just starts weeping. He just starts weeping when he hears these words from his brothers. And then we come to not only the climax in Joseph's life, but it's the climax of the book of Genesis. Here in verses 19 and 20. Really, really well-known passage, but I'm going to read it for us afresh. Genesis 50 Verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God can make it good. Let's try that again. God can make it good. The awful stuff 
the stuff you never planned, the stuff that totally screws up your life. Beyond imagination, yet God can make it good. And do you notice what Joseph says here? I mean, this is, this is astounding. He has every right to condemn, every right to pursue vengeance, every right to finally get just desserts. And instead, what he says is absolutely astounding. He says, am I in the place of God? Last week, we spent an extensive amount of time talking about forgiveness and what it looks like in your life and mine and how we are way too quick, way quicker for way less, you know, in terms of severity of wrongs to, to start playing the role of judge, but not so with Joseph. And Joseph even had the right. He was second in command of Egypt. If anybody had the position to quote-unquote be a legitimate judge in the midst of injustice, it's him. And yet he's utterly horrified to take the place of God. Utterly horrified. God can make it good. But we see the first important step for you and I, if we're going to lean into God's work of making things good rather than working against him or needing God to work in spite of us rather than the joy of having him work through us, here's the first thing we need to do. We need to know our place. Know our place. I mean, Joseph, he has all this power, all this privilege, all this wealth. I mean, he has so much at his disposal to do exactly what he wants, when he wants to do it. And he puts a huge pause and says, am I in the place of God? The problem throughout the whole book of Genesis is people again and again and again taking God's place. Isn't that with Adam and Eve? Right there in the garden. Hey, you can do all of this. Just don't, don't touch this one tree. Actually, don't eat it. Don't eat this tree. Oh, okay. Oh, but I might be God. I might be able to have the place of God. Adam and Eve disregard God's rightful place and seek to subvert God and exercise treason against their creator. You see Cain and Abel. You see Cain taking the place of God and so taking the life of his brother and bringing untold violence and the first murder. The story of the flood is human beings so escalating their role to try to take God's place and violence spreading across the world that God has to wash the world with a flood. The story of the Tower of Babel is a people, a whole city, unified what to make a name for themselves and so replace God from the center of the city. This happens again and again. It happens in Abraham and Sarah's life. It happens in... Uh, Jacob and Esau's life. It happens even in Jacob's son's lives, right? With Judah and the rest of the brothers against Joseph. And Joseph is like one of the only characters in all of Genesis who kind of steps back and says, I've got everything at my disposal to be and act like God, but I won't. It's unbelievably refreshing. It was right after uh, Christmas this last year, that our credit card number was stolen. <laughs> I was like looking through and um, I was like, ooh, maybe my birthday present. You know, I wonder what my wife got me. And then I look and it's like a $50 gas card to Quick Trip, you know, and then a $50 you know, gift card to Walmart. And I was like, these don't seem like things that Allie would get me for my birthday. Um, you always think of like those crazy commercials where the voice doesn't match the persona that's in front of you. Like it feels extremely violating. I was so indignant. 
I felt a great sense of betrayal. Who we are and our identity is something sacred to us. And when we feel like someone just snatches it and kind of does what they want and kind of takes our place in these situations, it feels like they've just attacked the very center of who we are. And yet we do this with God again and again. We try to steal God's credit card number. (laughs) Some identity theft situations here. We want control. We want to call the shots. We want to be in God's place. We want to tweak what God said in order to fit our lives rather than allow our lives to submit and mold to what he has said. Over and over again, we try to take God's place and try to take control. And listen, whenever you try to take control over anything you have no rightful control over, the only thing we rightly have control over is the decisions that we are making for ourselves But when we try to take control over against anything else, what we actually find is that we feel more out of control. We feel more anxious. When you try to take God's place, what joins you there is worry. Because you know your limitations. You know your failures. And now suddenly you've decided to be the master of your own destiny. There's no way that that can produce peace. It's a catalyst for deep worry when we try to take the place that was never rightfully ours in the first place. But when we rest in God and his rightful place, then we can know peace in a way that the same God who spoke all of creation into existence, who holds all of creation into existence, is holding you. And then suddenly you can watch the sunrise and it feels like a sacrament. Because the same God who was holding all of creation while you were unconscious for about eight hours, you suddenly remember again that he's holding you while you are conscious just as much. And you can rest in his work and his place rather than trying to subvert it. So what about you in your own life? When's the last time you asked and kind of thought through, where am I trying to take God's place? We've all got those places, and here's a helpful clue. It's probably the place you worry the most. Remember, worry and trying to take a place that isn't yours tend to go hand in hand. Are you worried most about finances? Are you worried most about a relationship? Are you trying to finagle a certain aspect of your life? Is it sex? Is it forgiveness? What is that for you where you're trying to take God's place? Where am I trying to take God's place? Because listen, here's our part. God can make it, but we also must remember our place. Now, some of us, we may be really good at that, actually. You may think, you know what, I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm trying to do what's good. I'm trying to be in line with what God says is good. And if you're anything like me, sometimes I fall into a trap. I start to think, you know what, God, I've done all the, these quote-unquote right things. I'm trying to be the right kind of person. And then something falls apart. You ever been there? And then the first question we shout up to heaven is, why, God? You see, we have never been promised a life without pain, a life without suffering, a life without hardship. 
Instead, and this is where we come to see the, the second most important posture practice that we need to have as people who are trying to work in line with what God's doing rather than against him. Not only do we need to know our place, but secondly, we need to expect evil. Expect evil. You can do everything right. You can be trying to follow and fall in line with what God has called you to, specifics within his word and even the discernment of his spirit surrounded by his community. And yet evil can still hit, disaster can still strike. And instead of saying, why God, we have to better understand where we are in the world. You see, the the story that Genesis portrays to us is not a life inside of Eden where everything works out okay. We are outside of evil, or, or outside of Eden where evil resides. And it's way more rambunctious, it's way more pervasive than we often realize. You can be doing everything right and then evil can strike and your life can be in shambles. But understand that's not because God has abandoned you. Just because God is making things good doesn't mean it's always going to be good. Evil, it's all over the place. Here, even with Joseph, a man of utter integrity, right? His brothers meant him evil. And Joseph doesn't just shrug it off and say, hey, it's no big deal. No, he calls it evil. He calls it what it is. Again, verse 19, or at verse 20, rather. As for you, you meant evil against me. He calls it what it is. It's evil, and it's way bigger than we often give it credit for. You see, you and I, we have evil even that still resides within us, such that if we fan that flame, it will continue to breed a cycle of destruction within our lives, and we can be that avenue of destruction in others around us. There's evil within others that they can continue to fan that flame, and we can experience the destruction and pain from their sin in our lives, even if we're seeking to follow Jesus robustly. There's evil that has contaminated the world writ large, such that we experience sickness, we experience death, we experience disease, we experience disaster. And then, of course, there is evil within the spiritual realm. We've seen it in Genesis 3. There is a malevolent being who is out to destroy humankind who longs to whisper lies within our ears so that he might mock us in the end and so defame God. We are not in a neutral world, folks. Evil is pervasive. And you may try to do all the right things in the world. You may be zealous to follow Jesus, but that does not mean we will ever be immune to evil and brokenness and pain. And we can't be naive to this. And we can't be surprised by evil when it strikes. And here's why. Because if we're naive to that or we think that somehow God's going to make it good, that means somehow in our minds that it's always supposed to be good. Then when evil does hit us, it's going to give us a jaded perspective on God. It's going to give us a jaded perspective on the world. You will not have ballast to continue to press up against and fight evil that is so prevalent in the world. If you are not expecting evil, it will not only crush you, it'll crush your world and you will be left paralyzed in its wake when it finally hits. We have to expect evil. You got to expect hardship because we are not in a neutral world. 
I'm more convinced that the evil one is perfectly content to let us believe that God is really good just as long as we simultaneously do not believe in a present pervasive evil. Because the moment it comes, the first thing we'll doubt is God's goodness. And if we can begin to doubt God's goodness, then all hell breaks loose internally in our walk with him. So let me ask you, of what, or maybe ask yourself, of what am I most afraid? Of what am I most afraid? Have you ever wondered, what if the thing I'm most afraid of actually happens? What if the thing I'm most afraid of actually happens? Two things that ring true when we come to expect evil is one, we will not believe if we're actually expecting evil because the brokenness of the world rather than because of what God is actually doing in the world. If we come to expect evil and it hits us and the worst thing that we're afraid of actually happens, then we will not believe that God has abandoned us, nor will we believe that somehow God has failed us. If we can expect evil, it doesn't instantly jump to the doubting of who God is and who he is for and whether he is with us. Evil will happen. Scripture across all, all pages of scripture, but evident brilliantly here in Genesis as we are given the sober warning that evil is present and we should expect it with eyes wide open. But that's not the end of the story, right? We have, after all, said that God can make it good. Oh, that was great. Way to go. While we should expect evil, we don't have to expect evil to be triumphant in the end. Really, if any, the story of Genesis is about anything, it's about how God's grace is triumphant in the end. When you go to Genesis chapter 6, and remember, all of this rampant violence that's going across the world, there's literally the phrase that there is only evil all the time. And yet God doesn't completely give up on humanity because of his grace. In chapters 12 through 15, God makes a promise to Abraham, not because he's a swell guy, but because God actually chases him down. And says, listen, I know you and Sarah can't have kids, but I'm going to give you a kid. And decades pass before he has this kid. And Abraham does a lot of evil things. And yet, God still gives him Isaac. You know, Isaac shows explicit favoritism in chapter 32 to Esau, which breeds all kinds of stuff in Jacob. And Jacob, he cheats, he lies, and he goes on the run, and still God meets him in his hour of need. Not because Jacob deserves it, but because of God's amazing grace. Then Jacob shows all sorts of favoritism. And his sons, they try to bite and devour one another. And yet through Joseph, we find unbelievable reconciliation. And in these 12 sons, we find the 12, 12 tribes of Israel and what God is going to do throughout the history of the world. And then the power of God's grace is on display in Joseph's forgiveness. His forgiveness reconciles and actually brings healing to generations of sin. And then through his leadership, by God's grace, God actually begins to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham that his offspring would actually be a blessing to the world. Through Joseph, in the hour of famine, the world finds bread. God's grace is all over over these pages, his unmerited 
favor and kindness towards humanity. You see, for God, evil is always eclipsed by good. For God, death does not mean the end. Really, what we come to see with God is that, that always, always life is possible after death. And so when we think about this third important characteristic, this third important posture or action for those of us who want to lean into what God is doing, if God can make it, if God can make it, then we not only need to know our place and expect evil. Here's, this is so important. We need to hope in life after death. Hope in life after death. You know what's so fascinating? Once again, we're looking at a lot of trends and themes throughout the book of Genesis as we're bringing this to a close. You know what's a common trend? Is that God, he allows things to look hopeless. He allows things to look like they're dead. He allows things for, for, for people, for characters within his history and what he's doing in the world to feel like there are no other options. This is the end of the road. There's no way you can bring it out of this. And God's like, okay, now I'm ready to do something. It's right there when dreams have been dashed, when plans have come crumbling down, when relationships have fizzled, when injustice looks like it's won. That's when God does some of his best work this world over. And he allows us to reach the end of ourselves. Because then we just see who really is the one who's carrying us through it all. Martin Luther King Jr., he tells of a pretty astounding encounter with God that he had during the Montgomery bus boycott that shaped his leadership the rest of his life. You know, when he began to take ownership and leadership of this boycott after Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat back in December 1955, and Martin Luther King Jr. was taking the lead, he began to take, receive a lot of death threats, both on him and his family. But there was one night in particular, he got a phone call in the middle of the night. He, he woke up, answered the phone, and the ominousness of this voice and the real, reality of the threat, the, the, this gentleman threatened, threatened to blow up their home and their family and their kids. And then he hung up. So Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, you don't go to sleep after that. Um, he hangs up the phone, he goes down into his kitchen, makes himself a cup of coffee, and he's just at the end of himself, looking in the cup, wondering, God, what are you doing? And in a place of desperation, he prays. Now, you got to understand, the way Martin Luther King Jr. would talk about this is he would say, hey, I got into this call because I heard the cries of my fellow man. The personal encounter with God I'd heard about from my ancestors, but didn't know personally. But there at the kitchen table, something happened. And in his words from The Stride Toward Freedom, his book, he writes this. I just have to read you his words. I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. That's when you know you're at the end of yourself. You're trying to figure out how to get out of it. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. And here's what he said. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I'm afraid. 
The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. I know from some of you, you've had encounters like that before. You feel like you're at the end of yourself. And then God shows up in ways you can't, you can't even really explain. And in this encounter, when he came to the end of himself, and he had to recognize at the end of the day, it was God who had to be with me. It's God who had to go ahead of me. It shaped his leadership for the rest of his life and gave him the ballast to push against injustice and fight for civil rights. Now, I say all of this, and I have to say this, while we remember this moment, we also must remember that not too many years later, he was also assassinated. In the face of fighting for justice and civil rights, his life was taken. And if you're anything like me, you're like, well, what is that supposed to mean? How do we, what do we, it definitely doesn't mean he shouldn't have been fighting against injustice. It definitely doesn't mean that you and I should not be fighting for justice. No, that's not what that means. What does it mean? And for that, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. Because here we find Joseph, right? Who's also had a pretty troubled story. Betrayed by his brothers, sent to a pit, sold into slavery, went back to the pit, then finally went to the palace, and through him was able to bless the world. But that's not the end of his story. The end of the story is not the happiest ending in the world here in Genesis. You see, when we go down to verses 22 through 26, we find Joseph on his deathbed. He's still longing. He's still hoping in the promises of God. And what does he tell his family that's looking on? Listen, listen, listen. God's going to come and he's going visit, to visit you. He says it twice. God will visit you. God will visit you. And when he does, will you bring my bones back to the land that God promised us? Will you bring my bones back home? I know this isn't our permanent dwelling. I know this is just a short stay. I know God worked through me to sustain us through this famine, but this isn't the end. God's promises still have us going further. And I know I'm going to be dead, but I know somehow I'm going to be a part of it. Will you let me be a part of it, even after I'm dead? You know, one of the ironies of the book of Genesis is that it begins with the invention of life. And it ends with a coffin. Literally. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph's end here is destined for every person in this room. One day we will all find ourselves in that place. If Oprah were here, she'd say, you get a coffin, you get a coffin. Like, <laughs> maybe not our most popular episode. Um, maybe you've seen it. But the reality is, is that one day this is all going to come to an end. And the question that you and I need to be asking ourselves is where am I going to put my bones? 
Where am I going to put my bones? Where are you investing your hope now? What are you holding on to? Because listen, God can bring life after death. The only reason Joseph is fighting for his bones to go, like if there's nothing after the grave, who cares? Leave his bones anywhere. But Joseph has confidence. He doesn't know how that God has made a promise to his people to give them the land of promise and to do something astounding. And somehow, even though when he's dead and he's nothing but bones, he wants to be a part of it because he knows that somehow he wants to be wrapped up in God's promises. Somehow, there is life after the death that God is working and he's been giving us hints throughout all of history of what he really has in store for you and for me when we trust him. God will visit you, but where are you going to put your bones? You know, I've asked myself that question a lot, whether it's planting this campus, whether it's holding my firstborn son lifeless in my arms, whether it's watching my parents' marriage fall apart, whether it's seeing the violence that continues to pervade our streets or the broken school systems that continue to be so difficult to to bring new life to, where am I going to put my bones? God can make it good. And you know the real reason I believe that? The real reason I believe that there is life after death, as good as Joseph's story is, it has less to do with Joseph. And more to do with Judah, his really sneaky brother, okay? There's something that God has promised to, Joseph, to Judah. Joseph was the avenue, really, to preserve one of the greatest promises this world over. And to one of the most wicked brothers. You see, Judah, Joseph's brother, is the one who participated in the evil against Joseph. Judah was the one who abandoned and abused his daughter-in-law, Judah. The only reason he's alive is because of the faithfulness of Joseph and God's abundant grace across the pages of Scripture. And yet, earlier in Genesis, we see the prophecy over Judah that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. And one of the most unlikely characteristics and characters in all of Scripture gives the birth to an expectation of someone who will make things right, who will finally put a bow on this magnificent story this world over. And people throughout history and prophets throughout history and kings throughout history have been looking for that one until Jesus came in the line of Judah. And he came in the place of a human Paul talks about him in Philippians chapter 2, that although he had equality with God, he didn't chase after it. He knew his place. And when he was here, he loved, he taught, he healed, and yet we meant evil against him. And then he went to the cross, and he died unjustly, and for three days he was in the grave. You don't get more hopeless than that. We meant him evil, but God can make it good. Do we see it? Do we see what God's doing? Jesus and all of his goodness went there because of our evil and because of God's goodness. Os Guinness, he's a brilliant apologist, 
and speaker around the world. Um, he's going to be with us at our Leewood campus on September 28th. On September 28th, um, that's a Saturday around 4 p.m. And this is what he says, that this is so good about God's goodness in light of what he's doing. He says, no other God has wounds. What other faith has at its heart a writhing body, torn flesh, shameful desertion and disgrace, anguished desolation and a darkness that can be felt? But what other faith has a God who so takes evil into himself that the day of the death of all deaths becomes the day death died? In the crucifixion of Jesus, sheer and utter evil meets sheer and utter love. Unadulterated love wins out over unadulterated evil. For those who know the cross, the pages of history are stained indelibly in blood with the evidence of the goodness of God. God can make it. We may not know how. We may not know when. But the only thing we know is that if we trust him, he will one day for those who trust in Jesus, for those who know our place, who expect evil and hope and life after death. And so wherever you are today, wondering, wishing, hoping, and praying, how are you going to bring this all together, God? May you hear the brilliant words of the artist, Her, where she sings, All you people of the land, down beneath the weight of all your sorrows, turn around while you still can. There's no guarantee you'll see tomorrow. The doors are open wide. Surrender to the light. The Lord is coming. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power, the glory, and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen.